Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. An incredible turn of events was taking place after a few icy months of winter. The Boers were waking up like hibernating bears and there would be a sudden escalation in incidents across South Africa. General Jan Smuts, the 24-year-old leader of a group of around 400 men, had survived three near misses after entering the Cape in the first week of September 1901. Remember I explained how he was first attacked by a group of Basutus? Then he was ambushed by a British patrol while conducting surveillance, losing three men and his horse. Then he was surrounded on a flat-topped hill in the Stormbach Range, the Stormy Mountains. General Louis Boerter, meanwhile, had managed to invade Natal with a much larger force of around 2,000 men and his commander, and had savaged a British cavalry unit near the town of Dundee. I explained last week how Captain Gough had charged straight into this commander and lost virtually all of his 245 men. Boerter and his commander had been marching south, skirting both Zululand and just clipping the Swaziland border. His men were riding fast. They had hundreds of pack mules and pack horses, leaving their cumbersome ox wagons. They had also armed themselves with both Lee Medford and Morza rifles, so they could take advantage of seized British ammunition. As Major Hubert Goch had discovered, this commander was moving swiftly. Remember, the invasion of Natal was the other half of the grand strategy agreed with Smuts at the meeting in Stanerton earlier in the year. The military aim was to divert pressure from the occupied republics, political aim to prove that the war was not over. But General Boerter faced difficulties. It was rainy season, despite some early shoots springing up on the felt, there was still not enough nourishment in the grass, and his horses began to suffer from the rapid march. The green hills of Natal haunted Boerter. It was his homeland, after all. But the mighty together and the smaller Buffalo Rivers were both flooding, and the rain began to ruin Boerter's plans. The cavalry charge near Freyheit, close to the Blood River Port or Way, had ended very badly for Goff. I described last week how that clash unfolded. Now I'll provide a few more details and show how, for Boerter, success would rapidly turn into failure. After Major Goch had ordered his men into attack and seen their defeat, the Boers came after him. As the commander circled his small group, he was trying to manoeuvre his field guns into position, but it was too late. The Boers shouted at him, hands up, and Goff put his hand down to his holster, realizing suddenly it was empty. His Batman had forgotten to pack it back after cleaning that morning. Boerter's men were wheeling and dodging as Goff began shouting, shoot them, shoot them, and Thomas Beckenham writes that he did this with the impotence of a man in a nightmare. Lieutenant Price Davies, a subaltern of the 60th, drew his revolver and was shot through his shoulder at point-blank range. He won the Victoria Cross for this act, by the way. Goch then threw himself off his horse and pulled it down to use as a shield, but the Boers overran him. The Boers then stripped Goch of his helmet, field glasses, coat, riding boots and gaiters, and then in the chaos he tried to play hide-and-seek with his enemy as the sun set. In the darkness he managed to find a pair of boots, but they were five sizes too big and didn't have laces. He hid in an ant hole, but the Boers discovered him. Goff eventually managed to escape later in the inky blackness, groping his way in blistered feet to the nearest English patrol. The next day, the 18th of September, telegraph lines were humming up and down South Africa and in England, bringing the news of Goff's disaster. Captain Mildmay and 19 men killed, five officers and 20 men wounded, six officers and 235 men taken prisoner. 
It was the most humiliating day for the British since Clemens defeated Nootgedacht nine months before, and another warning that the Boers were not spent yet. Boerter had seized 180 Lee Metford rifles, 30,000 rounds of ammunition, 200 horses and two field guns, along with over 240 prisoners. On paper it looked great, but as we know, wars are not fought on paper. The horses, for example, were exhausted. Goff's mounted infantry had ridden them virtually to death. The field guns were too cumbersome to be useful in this guerrilla campaign and were left. The prisoners were just as much trouble. How could he control them and feed them? He had the British soldiers and officers stripped, then forced them to march back to their own lines. They set off in the rain, and so did Boerter's commander. There has been much said and written about this war and about the phase of guerrilla non-conventional operations that characterised this part of the three-year conflict. On the ground, the British were demotivated and the Boers re-energised. However, it wasn't as simple as that. Because it continued raining for most of September 1901, and this caused both Boerter and Smuts a great deal of trouble, despite the fact they were fighting almost 300 miles away from each other. The pressure was compounded by the fact that General Boerter succumbed to a fit of overconfidence, believing the British he met throughout Natal were going to make the same mistakes Major Goff made. As the rain poured down, Boerter's men were cold and hungry, and he was looking for another quick victory. Boerter now turned his men along the Zululand border, the area where the Isuzulu were waiting for him and his commando. So he set off directly eastwards, bringing him close to the South Transvaal border once more as he tried to find a place to cross the Buffalo or the Tugela rivers. The rains had begun, the mighty rivers were full. He sent his scouts to check out two British outposts, one at Fort Prospect and the other at Fort Itala. They were about 10 miles apart. Boerter decided to split his force and attack both simultaneously. This was also a battle in which Zulu scouts fought for both sides and who were instrumental in some of the more strategic decisions taken by both sides. So General Boerter sent his brother Christian Boerter with a force of 1,400 men against Fort Itala and a second commando of 400 men under his brother-in-law Cherry Emmett to prospect. It was the 26th of September now, and Boerter's fatal error was close at hand. He had been told by the local burghers that these two British loggers would be easy meat, because they were not entrenched. Instead of checking the facts through intelligence gathering, he took the burghers at face value. One thing we all learn very quickly in warfare, never trust civilians. They don't really know what's going on. Not only had the British entrenched both forts, they were also defended by highly experienced veterans of this war. The Boers were going to find out just how well these men could fight and shoot. There were 300 mountain infantry at Fort Itala, under a young Major Chapman of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. There are some conflicting reports about just how well Itala was prepared, but there's no doubt that Chapman had ordered deep trenches dug in a semicircle. But he was at the foot of a mountain and this left him exposed from an attack from the rear, so he dispatched a unit of the South Lancashires to the summit with orders to wait for the Boers and then surprise them rather than the other way around. He knew that Boerter would probably initiate a night attack at his weakest point over the mountain, which is precisely what the Boer general did. There were only 80 South Lancashires, and they were overrun by a force of 1,400. It was full moon, and the battle lasted two hours, with Boer and Britain fighting hand to hand in the eerie light, almost as though a theatre performance was underway and the men were bathed in the light of the moon. 
When your eyes become accustomed to the light in South Africa at night, the moon is like a torch, it's so bright. At dawn, Christian Boerter ordered an assault on the main camp at Itala, and his men then ran slap-bang into the prepared trenches, dotted with heavily armed British troops who could conduct rapid fire very accurately. The Boers deployed a British-style recklessness as they tried to breach the trenches, some getting to within a yard before they were shot down in this intense almost First World War moment in the midst of a guerrilla campaign. For 13 hours, these brave men fought each other, Boers on one side, men of Lancashire, Middlesex, Dorset and Ireland on the other. Chapman was wounded, and at the end of the day he called his Zulu scouts to him as he was being patched up, and he received a situation report, a sit-rep. His scouts confirmed what the officers reported. The fort was surrounded by a vastly larger force, and Chapman then told the Zulu to leave. It was highly likely that the Boers would have shot them because this was supposed to be a white man's war and all armed blacks were in danger of summary execution. But they refused, saying they'd rather die fighting with him and probably also believing they had a better chance of surviving inside the fort than being seized outside. Another odd moment in South Africa's odd history. As Chapman prepared for his Custer-like last stand, Christian Boerter was holding a tactical discussion of his own, and the numbers were not good on his side either. Of his force of 1,400, 58 men were dead or wounded, and Boerter believed the British were going to fight to the death. So, it was once more that two different militia made the same decision at the same time, albeit as enemies, and unknown by the other side. As the moon sank lower in the night sky, some inky darkness returned and Chapman decided to retreat, leaving his wounded in the care of medics, withdrawing silently, expecting to have to fight his way out of Fort Itala. Instead, nothing, for the Boers had also decided to retreat. Meanwhile, ten miles away at Fort Prospect, the Boers were in for an even bigger surprise. Despite being told it was held lightly, the fort was a proper redoubt with walls impervious to rifle fire. It was on top of a large hill, which meant the Boers could approach through a mist that descended just before dawn. They came across the barbed wire entanglements, another precursor to the First World War, and managed to make their way to within 20 yards of the British redoubts before yelling, Surrender! You're surrounded! This battle is famous for a number of reasons, and one was a miner from Durham, who joined that region's militia and been sent to fight in South Africa. Surrender be damned, he shouted back. I'm a pit man and have been in deeper holes than this before. He was not alone, for fighting alongside the British at Fort Prospect was a large group of barefoot Zulu soldiers who could move silently at night, and they were armed with rifles, not assegais and spears. Fort Prospect was also defended by carefully constructed and intersecting nests of machine guns, the combination of stubborn British and Zulu defence and the hail of machine gun bullets caused 40 casualties amongst the Boers in short order. Only nine British and Zulu soldiers were wounded. This was virtually unheard of so far in the war. Usually, the British ended up with a lion's share of casualties. General Boerter was miserable. He could go no further. Just to the south of where he sat, pondering his next move, waited an army of 13,000 men. The British had sent word to the Isu Zulu chiefs that the Boers were about to invade and suggested that the Zulu defend themselves. Of course, this has to be seen as extremely ironic, considering the British had invaded Zululand in 1879 and attacked the Zulu. But allies and enemies are often changing affiliation based on the major threat at hand. The Americans and the Taliban, for example, after the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. Boerter's blunder 
was the result of poor intelligence, usually the prerogative of the Khakis. I must report that it was impossible for our commandos to enter Natal, wrote Buta in an official communique about the expedition. Because the enemy were aware of our plans and had already had lagers just opposite all the drifts of the Buffalo River. We had specially unfavorable weather for 11 days at rain, day and night. This weakened the horses very much. All true, but of course, he'd made significant errors himself, as we've heard. It became clear from Boerter's actions that he didn't realize just how much the British had developed over the past year. They'd begun to learn how old-fashioned some of their ideas were, and the Boers were still conducting some of their attacks based on what they thought the British army would do in response. Meanwhile, the British army was using some of the Boer army's methods. Worse for General Boerter, the black South Africans, who had always been involved, now began to mobilise in some parts of the Transvaal, Natal and the Cape with an eye to recovering lost land and prestige. The Zulu in particular were massing, partly because of the British call, but also because they realised with Boerter's defeat, there were lonely outposts ripe for a quick raid or two. I'll come back to this threat in later podcasts. 300 miles to the south, General Smuts and his small but extremely motivated and highly skilled commander had managed to elude General Haig, he of the famous Whiskey family. Remember how Haig had literally missed Smuts by a few hours? And how Smuts and his commander had watched a train pass by in the night near the Storenbach and looked through the windows in the thick of night, seeing British officers drinking their port and smoking their cigars. One was General Haig, passing his prey like a ship in the night, and both only realised this after the war when they sat down together to talk. But Smuts now had to face the big rain, which had fallen for the last three weeks and now turned into a biblical deluge. Still, we're dealing with one of the greatest and most motivational leaders who ever picked up a weapon. He may have had three near misses, but he wasn't about to let that slow him down. Soon after the army train passed, it was the 15th of September, 1901, an empty goods train chugged down the same line. Commandant van Deventer and a few of us remained behind to search the railway buildings for anything that might come in useful, and while we were busy at this, a long goods train came clanking up, and we brought it to a standstill by switching the points. Our intrepid narrator, Denise Rates, halted the train's progress. They all climbed aboard. In the guard's van, they found something more precious than a hot meal, a newspaper, which included this line. General Smuts has invaded the Cape Colony with the riff-raff of the Boer armies. They all had a good laugh at that. They also read about the proclamation of Lord Kitchener, wherein every burger under arms after the 15th of September would be exiled for life from South Africa. This was news to us, says Rate. And seeing that this was the 13th of that month by now, we were left with a bare two days in which to comply. This announcement was received with equal derision. Kitchener's ploy at the stick tactic had failed. No Boer commander or soldier gave himself up. But that didn't mean things were going well. Rates rejoined Smuts and the commando just in time to be harried away from the class Smuts River by another interminable British column. Haig may have missed Smuts, but he was not going to slow down. The British harassed the general constantly, and they could not stop to recover. Their horses were exhausted now, and at this moment the rain intensified along with a howling gale. The columns were toying with Smuts, they followed during the day, then set up camp during the night. 
This went on day after day, the British contenting themselves with following slowly, dogging the Boers every step of the way. Each night, Smuts and his men sat dozing under thorn trees, the rain leaving them soggy. No fires could be lit. We could see smoke curling from the English camp four miles behind, where whole streets of comfortable tents had sprung up, at which we gazed wistfully, for there were warmth and rest while we stood shivering in the biting wind. There were 1,000 men in the English column, calmly following the frozen Boers. Things were about to get worse again for Rates and his fellow fighters. General Smuts ordered them into the saddle once more as darkness fell, hoping to leave the British far behind. As they started off, the rain got harder and the darkness more intense. We had not gone 300 paces before we heard horsemen splashing through the mud in front and ran into the tail of an English patrol. But neither side fired. The troopers galloped away and the Boers sheared off too. The conditions were just too dreadful to fight. The night that followed was the most terrible of all. Our guide lost his way. We went floundering ankle deep in mud and water. Our poor horses stumbling and slipping at every turn. The rain beat down on us and the cold was awful. It may be spring, but the temperature had slipped to below freezing. Toward midnight, it began to sleet, icicles forming on the horses and the men. The grain bag which I wore froze solid on my body like a coat of mail, and I believe if we had not kept moving, every one of us would have died. Fourteen Boers died of exposure that night, one by one, slipping away in the darkness. Horses also died, and finally they came upon a deserted farmhouse where they took shelter, huddled together. They stood in the barns, but when day broke, a scene of terrible calamity surrounded them. Sixty horses had died in the night, their frozen bodies lying about the farmyard. The night's big rain, as we named it, left such a mark on all of us that later we used to call ourselves Die Groot Rient Carols, or the Big Rain Men, to distinguish us from those who had not experienced it. And, for my part, I passed through no greater test during the war. Another big test awaited General Smuts the next day, and one that he would pass with flying colours. But that's for next week. We have to halt right now, light a fire, and warm our stiffened fingers. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and post a review if you want. You can also contact me through the website abwarpodcast.com or on Twitter at Des Latham. And a big thanks to Susan from Canada who sent me a fantastic email. And Sam, thank you so much for the donation again. Until next week, goodbye. Die